Hello there. Thank you for being a loyal Key Conversations listener. We've had so much fun making this podcast for you and are getting ready for another great season of meaningful dialogue with some of the brightest minds in the country. Look forward to that once the academic year gets going again. In the meantime, enjoy this replay of an earlier episode and have a wonderful summer. Hello, and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. This podcast features conversations with Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who spend one academic year with us. They travel to up to eight Phi Beta Kappa-affiliated colleges and universities, partake in the academic life, and present a lecture on a topic in their field. Lectures are always free and open to the public, for a full schedule and to learn more about the program, visit pbk.org. Today, I'm happy to welcome Professor Harold Coe from Yale Law School. Professor Coe served as the dean of the Yale Law School and during his tenure at Yale has taken leaves to serve as the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the Clinton administration and as the legal advisor to the State Department in the Obama administration. He has authored or co-authored eight books, testified regularly before Congress, and litigated numerous cases involving international law in the United States and before foreign tribunals. He is a fellow at the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the Council of the American Law Institute. And I'm proud to add that he is a personal friend of many, many years. Welcome, Professor. Great to be here. Every year, the President of the United States gives a State of the Union. It's a major moment in Washington life. But let me ask you to start by giving us a state of international law and international human rights. How would you describe the state of international law today? I think we're at a moment of crisis uh, of the kind that we have not experienced since the founding of the modern order right after World War II. Um, I think that what we essentially had was the creation of a global governance order of the kind that Immanuel Kant envisioned in his uh, pamphlet to perpetual peace. And the idea was that democratic law governed societies would cooperate uh, in a framework of law to promote human rights and other kinds of values. The alternative was obviously some kind of Orwellian spheres of influence where There is no truth where authoritarians rule, where human rights are suppressed, and where dictators and authoritarians meet in various spaces to to make deals. And um, I think we are teetering at a moment between these two visions. And um, Donald Trump is a piece of the picture, um, but there are many other pieces as well. Uh, Around the world, you see China with Xi Jinping, now president for life, uh, Putin asserting astonishing influence and really taking uh, the United States to the cleaners, you know, the, the threat to Brexit, Poland, Hungary, Philippines, Venezuela. I could go on and on. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to go on and on, and I do want to go back to a number of those things. But let me take you back first. 
There's been a lot of talk about immigration, immigration policy today. That's a big part of your your life story. I remember being present when you were sworn in as legal advisor, and you spoke very movingly about your parents and their immigrant experience. Tell us a little bit about what that was like uh, growing up as a immigrant's kid, and how did it affect your way of looking at the world? Well, my late dad, Kwang Lim Ko, was born on a small island off the coast of uh, South Korea. He was the first person from the island ever to go to Seoul to study. Uh, but nevertheless, he was first in his class and won a scholarship to Harvard. Uh, my mother was from a you know, well-off family in Seoul, and so they never would have met in Korea because they were from very different social classes. But as it was, they made it here just before the Korean War, and then the war broke out, and uh, they were among less than a couple of hundred Koreans who were living on the East Coast, and they met each other and got married. And um, both of them got PhDs. Uh, my mother at Boston University, which you know well. My dad uh, finished his degree at Harvard and went back to serve the first democratic government in Korea in 1960. And then that government was overthrown by a military coup. Uh, my dad was the only guy in the embassy in Washington who did not serve the military junta, although everybody else promised that they would only serve a democracy. They all recanted, and this had a huge impact on me. So, you know, he told me that the only life that was worth living was the life of a scholar. In Korea, the word sunsang nim means scholar, but it actually carries a tone of reverence that no other English phrase captures. It's more like, you know, Jedi master. <laughs> and... Um, we were told that to be a sunset nim was the greatest thing you could do. And sure enough, that's, that's how I got involved. But why, why law? Do you think there was a connection between the experience of growing up as a child of immigrants and an interest in law and particularly international law? I, I think that when you grow up in a society that veers back and forth from being authoritarian, the rule of law is what makes the difference. When I was a college student, uh, I went to Korea uh, just during the summer where Nixon was being impeached. And um, that same summer, there was an assassination attempt on the president of Korea. And um, they declared martial law, so I couldn't leave. So I was stuck in Korea. And on that same day, suddenly Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford became president. And I called home and my dad said to me, now you know the difference between a democracy and a dictatorship. He said, in a dictatorship, if the troops obey you, they call you president. But in a democracy, if you're president, the troops obey you. And that's the difference between the rule of law and the rule of individuals. Do you have a couple of stories from that time when you were assistant secretary that particularly exemplify that? Countries where you coming in as an American assistant secretary of state for democracy and human rights made a particular impact? Well, the clearest example was in November of 2000. Uh, it was just after the presidential election, which went to the Supreme Court and ended up electing George W. Bush over Al Gore. But during that period, I went with Madeleine Albright to Pyongyang, to North Korea. And um, that was really the most moving trip of my life. We were there for five days. We met with Kim Jong-il's who is the father of Kim Jong-un, who is now the 
the dictator of North Korea. And, um, you know, they, they started by saying, you know, uh, when Albright raised human rights issues, you know, we, we Asians don't believe in human rights. And she just gestured to me. <laughs> like, uh, um, you might want to reconsider that. Um, I think what was also extraordinarily powerful was, uh, you know, Korea is a country divided. The South and the North are the same people. And uh, when we landed in North Korea, there were no lights. The people were starving. The streets were deserted. There were no cars. Uh, there was no gasoline. And uh, when we flew out of uh, North Korea to the south, it, it's only 18 miles to Seoul. Suddenly the, the sky was lit up with lights. And it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, the only difference between the north and the south is the form of government they hold. These are the same people. And that, you know, the there's a land of darkness and a land of light. And just metaphorically, uh, it's very much attached to the form of government that they choose. So what would it take to see a unified Korea? How how far are we from that, do you think? Uh, we're very far from that, I think. Um, well, you know, first of all, the, the North and the South have to talk. And uh, one good thing is that they are talking now. Moon Jae-in, the new president, is committed to this and had his own summit with Kim Jong-un. But secondly, it has to be in a framework of multilateral talks. Every time the United States and its allies have gotten together in six-party talks with North and South Korea, they start to make progress. What doesn't work is threatening people. You know, no nation state has surrendered its nuclear weapons under threat of force. It's only happened in multilateral talks. The greatest irony is that our president has walked away from exactly the kind of deal, the Iran nuclear deal, that he needs to negotiate in North Korea. And he's celebrating a declaration which has none of the specificity or enforcement mechanisms of the deal he just walked away from. And he's essentially giving Kim Jong-un uh, a ground to say, why should I give up my nuclear weapons? After all, how can I trust that uh, Trump won't walk away? And I think that it creates a real possibility that nuclear weapons will stay and that what the United States will end up doing is, is uh, ratifying the presence of nuclear weapons in the North. And that's a great tragedy. So if Secretary Pompeo walked in here and he said, Harold, we got a new plan. You're, you're in charge of the Korean Peninsula for our policy for the next year. What, what, are your, what do you do over the first 90 days? I'd say stop meeting at the summit level. You know, Pope Pompeo went and just recently was humiliated. He, he didn't even get a chance to meet Kim Jong-un. I'd say build up your career diplomats, the ones who really knew what was going on, left. Um, start having daily talks about tractable issues. For example, returning remains of dead soldiers, family visits, a direct hotline between the South and the North, um, and then start to talk about a framework in which you talk about two issues, denuclearization and peace, and talk about them in a coordinated framework. And then talk about human rights, because one of the most appalling things is 
these guys are masters of arresting people. And then when you go to a summit, they release them. And they want to get credit for that. And <laughs> Trump gave them credit for that, which is absolutely astonishing. You know, So it just gives them more incentive to do exactly the same. First you rob the bank, and then you give the money back, and you want to be a hero for returning the money. And I'd say most important, Secretary Pompeo, remember that the, the actual impact that North Korean nuclear weapons on intercontinental ballistic missiles would have on the U.S. grid is nothing compared to what they can do with cyber attacks. After all, the um, Sony hack and the WannaCry virus, big ransomware attack, were done from North Korea. So before you have a meeting with someone like Kim Jong-un, you say to him, if you want the privilege of having the meeting with the sitting president of the United States, you better stop all cyber activity that could threaten our grid. And if not, your grid's going to go down in accordance with international law, rules of retortion, et cetera. But, you know, the economist said Kim Jong-un, he, he played our president pretty badly, you know. He got the greatest gift of all, which was a meeting with the sitting president without giving away anything. Uh, they started talking about the vague concept of denuclearization. Trump treated it like a contract. And as you know, as a lawyer, there are real contracts. And <laughs> uh, then he said, I'm hoping he'll live up to his handshake. It was just a handshake. And uh, now we're in a situation where uh, the United States is desperate to have this diplomacy succeed. It's not happening on a multilateral basis. Um, the whole thing is a disaster, uh, and uh, the framework of it is crumbling before our very eyes. Can it be rebuilt? Yeah, you have to go back and um, start again, uh, walk it back, turn it multilateral. The diplomats at the career level should meet every single day and forget about the summits for a while and um, work your way back up to meaningful frameworks and then stick to those frameworks as opposed to just walking away from them. You know, it should look like the Iran nuclear deal. The Iran nuclear deal got rid of 98% of the enriched uranium in Iran. If we got half of that in North Korea, we would be doing something. So there's a bizarre experience, which is that the president has no plan B for the Iran nuclear deal, and he has no plan B for Korean talks other than to go back and calling him rocket man and threatening fire and fury. And this, these, this kind of thing is, uh, this is um, elementary school playground talk. It's not, it's not serious. Let me go back to your Clinton administration experience. And in fact, the very beginning of it, if I have it right, you got your uh, job or you got their their interest in you being recruited in an unusual way. You had sued the government and they were impressed with that and they recruited you into the State Department. Uh, that's an unusual way to get a job. Were you surprised when you got the phone call? I was very surprised. Um, what they said to me, which was very touching, was I said, you know, I spent uh, from 1991 through 1994 suing the Clinton administration first for refugees from Haiti and then refugees from Cuba. And uh, I said, you know, uh, and both cases ended, ended up uh, resolving themselves with, from my perspective, better policies than we had had before. They said, um, that's why we want you, because uh, Albright 
knows that you'll give her an honest answer and that you're not a yes man. So if you tell the outside world that what we're doing is consistent with human rights, people are more likely to believe it. In the Obama administration under Secretary Clinton, you served as legal advisor. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that position is? It's an extraordinarily important role in American foreign policy, but probably one of the less known roles. So um, I was the 22nd legal advisor. Um, You're essentially the conscience of the United States on matters of international law and on all issues of foreign policy law. And um, it was the most totally fascinating job I can remember. On my very first day, (laughs) they tell me um, at one of our ports, they've stopped a box of fertilized panda eggs and the question, they're owned by a large foreign country. You can imagine which one it is. Um, can it be attached uh, by a court uh, as a, a judicial attachment to secure a fund for a lawsuit? Or is it subject to the doctrine of foreign sovereign immunity? You know, The truth was I had never thought about that question. But uh, literally, I, I started to have a little test for myself. How early in the day would I encounter the problem that I could put on an exam when I got back to teaching. And it was usually by about 8.30 or 9 in the morning. Now, one of those hard exam questions would have to be one of the most complicated issues you were involved in, and that was the legality of the use of drones. And I know that got to be quite a controversy. What what happened there? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, um, I was struck by the fact that... Um, Many people who were very upset about drones didn't go back and say, did we do the right or wrong thing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? After all, thousands of civilians were killed in those two. And most people, most Americans seem to accept that as part of American history. In 1949, we adopted the Geneva Conventions, and that required that you draw lines between lawful killings and unlawful killings in wartime. And um, that suddenly makes law very relevant because it's the difference between whether you're committing a lawful act or a murder. And I've heard politicians say, let's get the lawyers off the backs of the generals. I'd say to them, don't you dare. That's exactly where you need the lawyers in play. Now, it turns out that um, we developed this technology. Um, The technology allows you to single out people who are about to attack the United States and have attacked the United States. The question, which I think the Israelis first face, is can you target them? Can you target um, Osama bin Laden? And if so, can you use high-tech equipment to do so? And my view is the history of weaponry is more remote, more accurate weapons. And so they can be used legally or illegally. And so I expressed the view and, uh, that, that you could, under certain conditions, do it lawfully. If you violated those conditions, you were acting unlawfully. What surprised me was that many in the government uh, didn't want to state what those were publicly. They didn't want to state our standards. And so then you have people saying things like, the administration claims a right to kill anybody anywhere sitting in a cafe in New York, which is not what they were claiming. So I thought I should give a speech. The good thing about the giving a speech is you 
write it and other people clear it. Hundreds of people cleared it. In fact, they were clearing the speech while I was giving the speech. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even fully cleared until I got to that part of the speech. And uh, it was amazing. Um, someone wrote an article where they said, at, at that point in the speech, Co clung to his notes. The answer is I didn't know what I was authorized to say. I mean, people were literally handing me yellow stickies during the speech. Right on the spot. Yeah, to, to make sure that I was saying what everybody had approved, because that's the difference between an approved statement of the U.S. government or not. After that, there was much more specificity in what the standards were. And my view is, if you're a pacifist, you're not going to like drawing these distinctions. I, I respect that. But if you believe that uh, the rules of war are changing and have to adjust, and that we have to define when we have a legal right to protect ourselves and when we don't, then you ought to state those standards. And if you're not prepared to do that, you shouldn't go into the government as a lawyer. When I got back to the academy, I got a lot of criticism. And, you know, frankly, um, it's always easy to be in the faculty lounge because you can always be right. And you can take inconsistent positions between today and tomorrow. You know, another similar kind of dilemma was about the war in Iraq. I mean, I opposed the war in Iraq. Um, it was a huge mistake, gigantic mistake. But when you get into the government and the government is in Iraq, you know, you can't simply say the mistake was made three years ago. You have to move forward. There's been a fork in the road and you're down the wrong fork. And your job is to try to bring things back to some approximation of where it ought to be. And it's very easy for people to say, you're still on that same wrong path. But, you know, <laughs> that's, the way the, that's the way life moves. But, you know, my own view is when I was an undergraduate, I was sitting in a classroom of a poli-sci class. And somebody once said, oh, that guy is an in-and-outer he was referring to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And I raised my hand and I said, what's that? And he said, he's sort of a scholar ambassador. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, he he sometimes works in the academy and he sometimes works in the real world. And um, he goes back to the academy and gets a big picture vision. And then he goes into the government and tries to discharge it. And I thought, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I wrote a paper about it, and then I thought, eh, maybe that's what I should do. Where do we get to do that? So you're back in the academy now uh, and have just completed or in the process of completing an important book called The Trump Administration and International Law, which comes out in September, right? September 17th. September 17th, which happens to be Constitution Day, as some of us know, and a good way to celebrate it will be this book coming out. So tell us a little bit about it. Uh, and. What was the impetus for it, and what issues you're going to deal with in that book? Yeah, it, it comes back to um, a famous joke that Mel Brooks used to tell. You know, he, he used to play a guy called the 2,000-year-old man. And uh, they'd ask him, um, before there was a god who was there, and he'd say, there was a guy named Phil. And he'd say, well, what did Phil do? And he'd say, we'd say to Phil, don't kick us and don't beat us. And then one day, lightning came out of the sky and struck him dead, and we said... There's something bigger than Phil. That was the first prayer. There's something bigger than Phil. <laughs> There's something bigger than Phil. Well, you know, every day I watch the news and it's Trump this, Trump that. And my response is there's something bigger than Trump. It's a web and framework of law and uh, norms that preexisted Trump and 
uh, will be there after he's gone. He's part of the process. He's maybe the most influential player in the process, but he doesn't own that process. And that process is pushing back. Um, every day he tries to change things, and every day it pushes back. And uh, what I decided to do was to see how it played out in a variety of settings, immigration, human rights, climate change, denuclearization, North Korea, Russian hacking, America's wars. And what I feel across the board is that, yes, Trump is disrupting things. Is he deeply changing things? Not so much. I'm reminded of the famous rope-a-dope fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, where Muhammad Ali was being battered and everybody thought he was about to be knocked out. In fact, his opponent was flailing around, got exhausted, and then at a particular moment, Muhammad Ali came off the ropes and won the fight. But the other part of it was he was badly battered and uh, unglued. And I think that's what we're witnessing now is um, uh, civil society, the existing institutions of law, deeply entwined institutions of law are resisting. And uh, we'll see who wins the fight. Which side are you betting on? Well, it's it's not a bet. It's a, it's a commitment. Um, along with writing this book, we've started something called the Rule of Law Clinic at Yale Law School. Uh, we're a law firm. Uh, we were involved with the travel ban case. We're supporting transgendered soldiers who are being dismissed from the military. We brought a number of cases having to do with climate change. We brought census cases. You know, in my view, if if you understand the human body, if you become a doctor, you acquire a moral duty to try to make people healthy. You don't have that duty if you don't understand. If you understand the body politic, then your job is to weigh into the fight and make it better. So I'm not just betting Trump wins or loses. I'm actually going to wade into the fight to make sure that the side I think ought to win prevails. And I think that's what uh, an engaged member of the academy ought to do. Sounds to me as if you're still in the ring. <laughs> so tell me how the, the book and the chapters in the book will correlate with some of the work you're going to do as a visiting scholar this year for Phi Beta Kappa. Yeah, part of my lectures will be just kind of recapping the overall themes of the book. But there are different pieces of it which I'm exploring in more detail. The, the future of climate change, for example. Um, one way to think about climate change is, you know, Trump has said he'll withdraw from the Paris Agreement. In fact, he's done nothing. Um, he, he's it, Tweets don't have legal force. He's announced that in November of 2019, he will do something. That's like my telling you I'll leave my job in a year. And there's been an overreaction to that. In fact, all he's really done is withdraw from the federal government's role. But as you and I know from having been deans, when you have a fundraising thermometer and one of the big donors doesn't fill in their role, you get others to fill in. Right states and localities, private parties. And that's what we're seeing is that climate change, again, doesn't belong to Donald Trump. It belongs to all of us. You know, the future has already shifted to clean energy. And so he's a little bit like King Canute trying to hold back the tide. I'm going to lecture about North Korea because people are obviously interested in that. 
it's something that as a Korean American, I have a deep interest in. I'm going to uh, talk about 21st century war. You know, we don't have uh, the question that, that I'm often asked about drones shows that we're, we're in a zone now where we have drones, cyber conflict, and special operations. You know, we don't have gigantic shock and awe operations anymore. And the question is, how can these things uh, conform to the Geneva Conventions? And there is a fundamental choice. You can say that it's new, so it's a black hole, so no law applies. That's, that's what I call the, the Tina Turner approach. You know, what, what's law got to do with it? It's a sweet old-fashioned notion. But the other approach is uh, Montesquieu's, the, the spirit of the laws. There's law. It doesn't apply exactly to that frame, but there, it has a spirit. And you choose a law-governed framework. And a law-governed framework is most likely to lead to coordinated activity with other countries. It's less likely to lead to conflict, et cetera. And um, increasingly, that's going to be the issue. If, if Trump succeeds in violating international law at home, that doesn't mean it's going to be accepted abroad because we're part of an um, interchangeable world. You know, Trump would like to resign from the global legal system, but he can't. And uh, he'd like to, any more than I can resign from the human race. I'm part of it. And um, that is the, the bigger thing which is going to prevail, I think. But it needs a little help from our friends. Delighted that you're going to be a visiting scholar this year, but you're a guy with a lot on your plate and a lot of other things you could have done. What made you decide to accept the appointment as a visiting scholar for Phi Beta Kappa? I, I love going to colleges and universities. Um, a- after the Iraq war in 2003, it was a very depressing time, was a period where I was taking my daughter to college. And we drove from really south of Virginia all the way up to Maine. Every 50 miles, there was another college or university. Every one of them was spectacular. And I would think about what my dad used to tell me. In Korea, this would be the best university in the country. And I thought, this is America's strength. It's, it's not our weapons. Uh, it's, it's not our hard power. Um, it's these campuses and, and, and their diversity and, and the, the way in which they allow people like me to become Americans and then to aspire to serve in the government. And, um, you know, this is where I should be spending more time. And so uh, the Phi Bay Kappa Scholars Program gives me a chance to go to schools that I would never just walk into and talk to people. I, I like the lectures, but I like even more the kind of engagement with the students um, and just the numbers of them who have these astonishing aspirations and, you know, the, I told him my father's from a little island off the south coast where he spent a lot of time catching fish. And, <laughs> you know, I, I got to be here. Um, it, it's, it's a message that I, um, gives maybe some other people some feeling that they could do something even better. Sounds like we won't just be having you on all those campuses. We'll have your father right along with you. Yeah, he's with me all the time. Thank you for being with us. Great spending time together, Hal. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams and Co. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the Phi Beta Kappa Visiting Scholar Program, 
please visit pbk.org. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time, 